Good afternoon, everyone. Good morning to those of you who are not in the East Coast. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a practicing surgeon in Phoenix, Arizona, coming to you live from Phoenix and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. The healthcare sector has lagged behind many other sectors of the economy that for many years have been using and benefiting from live streaming technology like we're using right now. It wasn't until the COVID-19 pandemic hit that healthcare practitioners, the public and policymakers became more aware of the benefits that telehealth technology can offer. One reason for that is that most states prohibit patients from accessing telehealth services from out-of-state clinicians unless those providers obtain licenses from the states where the patients reside. Ironically, states let their residents travel by plane, train, or automobile to a healthcare practitioner in another state to seek advice and treatment, but states block those same practitioners from providing the same advice and care to their residents using telehealth. States, therefore, prevent people who don't have the time or money to travel out of state from getting the health care they desire. This is particularly painful to people who live in remote and rural areas or in medically underserved areas. During the COVID pandemic, with many local health care practices closed and many people confined to their homes, most states temporarily suspended the licensing requirement. This was a tacit admission that licensing laws block access to health care. Now that the public health emergency is over, most states have returned to the status quo ante. Many patients seeking the expertise of renowned out-of-state clinicians drive to telemedicine parking lots, sort of like cell phone lots in airports, in states where the clinicians hold licenses in order to conduct telehealth visits. Shannon McDonald, MD, is a radiation oncologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. State licensing laws have come between Dr. McDonald and her patients needing follow-up care. She has joined with a medical colleagues and New Jersey patients to sue the state of New Jersey, contending its health professional licensing laws are unconstitutional. Dr. McDonald wrote an op-ed about this in the Wall Street Journal on January 19th, which is linked on this event page. And when I read the column, I thought I must contact her and learn more about this. And so here we are. Dr. McDonald is a graduate of Loyola University, Chicago Stritch School of Medicine, did a residency at New York University Medical Center, and is an associate professor of radiation oncology at Harvard Medical School and practices radiation oncology at Massachusetts General Hospital. We're also joined by her attorney, Caleb Trotter of the Pacific Legal Foundation. Caleb has a Loyola connection with Dr. McDonald in that he graduated cum laude from Loyola University in New Orleans College of Law and received his undergraduate degree at Tulane University. Also with us is Anastasia Bowden, the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. Anastasia received her BA from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and her JD from Georgetown University Law Center. After each of our experts give their opening remarks, we'll engage in a conversation and take questions from viewers. Please submit your questions on the Cato event website or on YouTube, Facebook, or X using the hashtag, hashtag Cato Health. And if you're interested in pursuing the subject further, please see the links under additional resources on this event webpage. So let's begin with the person who inspired this event in the first place. Shannon, please tell us your story. Thank you very much. And it's an honor to participate in this webinar. Um, so my practice involves the treatment of rare cancers, mainly in children and with a therapy that's not available in all states. So most of my patients come from out of state. During the pandemic, when telehealth exploded, I was able to reach my patients via telehealth. 
in their homes and get to know them before they travel for several weeks of cancer treatment with me. My follow-up patients could be seen via video with their loved ones instead of traveling alone, taking time off from work, and paying for flights and hotels. My patients and I loved this, and personally, I thought it would continue forever. So it seemed really wrong when state restrictions were put back in place after COVID, taking away one of the silver linings of a terrible pandemic. So I wrote a story, it got published in the New England Journal of Medicine, picked up by lay media. I then partnered with colleagues at Harvard Law School and Harvard School of Public Health, leading national efforts to reform these laws that made sense during a pre-industrial era before the telephone when medical advice had to be given in person, but little sense in the modern era when distance disappears over internet and telephone. I then partnered with Dr. Sean McBride from Memorial Sloan Kettering and the Specific Legal Foundation who took on this case pro bono to pursue an update of these laws that's more suitable for modern era medicine and allows us to reach patients in rural areas and provide healthcare that all of our patients in the U.S. deserve. Okay, well, thank you, Caleb. Please explain to us non-lawyers the constitutional arguments that uh, you make in this case? Of course, Jeff. So we, in this case, we raise four separate constitutional claims. A, a couple of them are, are kind of duplicative, but um, are in response to some statements from various Supreme Court justices. And, and that's our first two. The primary theme of this case is, is based in the Constitution's Commerce Clause. And that clause has the power to regulate the national economy. And so while traditionally physician licensing is all done from, from state to state, every state has their own license, their own process, even though the substantive requirements are essentially identical in every state, it's medical licensing and all other professionals, that licensing process is done at the state level. But because this case, as, as you've noted in your introduction and Dr. McDonald mentioned, when we're talking about national specialists who these are the physicians who, when your local doctor doesn't have the expertise or the resources to, to properly handle a, a rare disease or, or, or condition, these are the specialists that you are referred to. And so it's fair to say that a, a specialist like Dr. McDonald has a national practice. In some instances, they even have global practices where they're seeing people from around the country and, and, and across the globe. And so with that national context in mind, with state level telehealth restrictions limiting their ability to have their national practices, we feel that that implicates the Constitution's Commerce Clause and that regulatory power is most appropriately left to Congress to have a uniform uh, rule for that type of national practice. And, and I want to be careful to distinguish this kind of national specialty practice from things like primary care that really have a, a, a local, uh, a, lo a much more local connection than, than something like this would. And so that's our, our primary um, theme of this case, our primary constitutional claim that's paired with um, the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4 of the Constitution. But for, for our purposes today, they're essentially doing the, the same thing. Uh, they're just both included for some uh, technical legal reasons. Um, our, our third claim, however, is a bit different, and that's based in 
the free speech clause of the First Amendment. And since what we're talking about in this case is initial upfront co consultations between a potential patient and a specialist like Dr. McDonald, where really it's just a conversation to either confirm a diagnosis, to see if traveling to see that, per that physician in person for actual hands-on treatment would be appropriate. All this is is a conversation. There's no, there is no treatment taking place. This isn't talk therapy for one. It's really just a chat to see if it is worth the time and the expense um, to travel in person for treatment. And in, in the context of rare diseases and conditions, as Dr. McDonald and many of her colleagues has explained to me, time is particularly of the essence. Typically, someone has been um, diagnosed locally and they're very quickly seeking either second opinions or referral to start treatment right away. And they might need to um, pursue these conversations with a number of specialists around the country. But if it were, for, and telehealth, of course, allows that to be done very easily, very affordably from the comfort of home with loved ones there with you to help support you. But if, you, if someone was required to travel in person for every single one of those consultations, assuming they were well enough to do that, assuming they had the resources to do that, that would just be a, a, a very large burden on them to do so. And so telehealth makes that much more accessible. And that's just a conversation again. And then on the, on the following side, if, if say if they determined that treatment was appropriate and they did go for that in-person treatment, well, in the, in, the, in the days, the years following that, it's often necessary and appropriate for there to be follow-up conversations, just to check in, see how things are going, make sure recovery is going well. Um, some patients need, you know, periodic scans and imaging to make sure that cancers haven't recurred and being able to do those type of imaging locally and then send the results to your out-of-state specialist is very easily done now, technologically speaking. And again, if, if a patient were forced to travel in person for what could easily be a phone call just to say, I've reviewed things, everything looks good, there's no other concerns, we'll see you in a year, that, that's the kind of thing that is precisely what telehealth uh, makes much more accessible and affordable and easy, easier for patients. And, and again, since that is simply just a conversation, this follow-up piece as well as the consultation, what we're talking about here is speech being limited. And while yes, in the broad sense, this is the practice of medicine, without getting too far into the First Amendment weeds, there's a big distinction between speech and conduct itself. And in, in, our, in, in our complaint, in this case, we say that these simple conversations are on the side of speech that is protected speech under the, the First Amendment and that the, the New Jersey government should have to meet a, a stringently high barrier to justify these restrictions. And then our final claim, uh, because in this case we have two physicians, but we also have some patients. One of them is a college student. The other is, is a teenager as well as his father. And under the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause, uh, the Supreme Court and many other courts have recognized that parents have a fundamental right to direct the lawful medical care and treatment of their children. And since in, in our patient J.A.'s um, case, the, our teenager, has, we, go, we use his initials in the legal documents because he's a minor. Um, so J.A., he, he suffered from a rare cancer. This isn't some kind of... Um, 
experimental treatment that he sought with Dr. McDonald, radiation uh, proton therapy, something that is illegal. It's just extremely, uh, and I'm sure Dr. McDonald can go into this further if she likes and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just, it's a type of treatment that is relatively new. It's very resource intensive. There aren't a lot of specialists who have the necessary expertise, as well as there aren't all that many facilities in the country that provide it. And at the time when J.A. needed this treatment, um, it wasn't available in his home state, which at the time was New York. He's since moved to New Jersey. But in the, at the very least, it's, it's just a, it's a treatment that is not widely available. There are few experts available um, to, to provide it. And, and, that, and so our due process claim is that his father, while he got that treatment before, now as follow-ups become necessary just to check in every year with imaging to make sure everything's going well, that by having New Jersey's telehealth restrictions in place, that is burdening their ability to continue to maintain that patient-physician relationship with Dr. McDonald. And so the likewise, the government in New Jersey also has a barrier to justify that burden on their ability to, to pursue that treatment. And, and we say lawful medical care because there are, of course, some controversial types of care, experimental types of care that aren't legal in all states, and perhaps there could be a, a justification for different rules based on those types of treatments. But for the purposes of our case, no one argues that proton therapy is, is not legal, <laughs> is not the standard of care while um, limited to experts. And so um, those are the three claims. And, uh, and yeah, I'll leave it there. Okay, thanks, Caleb. Uh, Anastasia, you have a lot of experience actually in this area, so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about this. Yeah, well, it's great to be here, Jeff, and to be talking about this really important issue. And I think when it comes to pediatric oncology, it's just obviously important to everyone. You know, they people viscerally understand um, why people need access to this care. And I think I'd like to talk about, you know, how many aspects actually of our everyday health needs um, can now be taken care of via telehealth. And so why this issue really affects all of us in ways that we might not uh, anticipate, and especially rooted in my own experience. You know, I'm a recovering litigator myself and representing um, healthcare professionals in these types of cases. I wanted to reflect on that. And so one thing that I'm pretty passionate about is teledentistry which is actually really important. It's one of the main reasons, one of the main reasons that people unnecessarily show up at the emergency room is for tooth pain. And so they come thinking they're having some sort of, um, you know, broader health emergency. And in reality, they just need to go see a dentist and they get turned away. And so I think any of us who has shown up at the ER before knows that those visits can be quite expensive. Um, and so there's a really important triage function here where if you are able to speak with someone when you're having some sort of mouth pain um, via telehealth, they can give you some quick advice about whether this is really an emergency room need that requires going to the ER or something that you can talk to uh, a dentist about. And so teledentistry serves a really important triage function. Also, teledentistry is important because people have a dental phobia. I think all of us know that that's, that's one of the biggest fears in, <laughs> that you can talk to people about, right, is like a fear of the dentist. Um, and dental problems have been linked to really serious other broader health problems. And so it's important that people do not um, avoid going to the dentist because it's related to our, our total wellness. Um, so early on in the pandemic, 
Texas actually banned teledentistry, which is really interesting because as you were saying, Jeff, um, during the pandemic, many states recognized that they needed to promote tele uh, telehealth, that this was, you know, people needed access to health without leaving their homes. Um, and yet Texas went the exact opposite way and tightened controls rather than loosening them. So in its COVID guidance posted on its website, it interpreted this record keeping requirement, which said that, you know, all dentists have to keep records as somehow mandating a physical exam and then related records in every single dentist patient interaction. So according to the board, dentists must perform a tactile or oral exam, record the results um, with every single consultation, regardless of whether the dentist deems it medically necessary or appropriate to have an in-person exam. And I think this is particularly amusing because during COVID, most people didn't want face-to-face -face interaction, especially if it requires putting your fingers near someone else's open mouths, right? This is like the things that, that most people were trying to avoid most. And yet this is the th exactly the thing that Texas was mandating. Um, and it's a pretty serious problem because especially in Texas where this all went down, because according to estimates from the National Center of Health uh, Statistics, about 40% of Texans don't see a dentist even once a year. And that's mostly due to concerns about costs, although there is, there's other concerns too, you know, like dental phobia um, and people living in rural areas and just not having local access. So this was really a detriment to patients. And it's also a disaster for the practitioners themselves. So I represented someone in this, in this situation. Her name was Dr. Celeste Moore. She was a longtime Texas licensed dentist, um, but she had moved out of state working from her home in South Carolina. She was a caregiver to two special needs sons. And so it was really important for her to have flexibility in her schedule to be able to work from home. And so she wanted to provide um, remote care via teledentistry. And in fact, she had using this website called the teledentist. But then when Texas banned uh, teledentistry, she essentially lost her job there, her livelihood there. Um, and, you know, the board also was robbing thousands of Texans of this, this very valuable service. And so, you know, you wonder why would Texas do this? And I think I have a few insights into that just based on my um, experience suing the government, particularly when it comes to uh, occupational licensing. And that is that eight of 11 of the members of the Texas Dental Board were practicing dentists. And, you know, traditional dentists who have a brick and mortar office, who don't want competition, who don't know maybe how to, to practice via telehealth, um, see teledentistry as a threat to their traditional practice. And also we know that telehealth tends to bring down prices. So because it's a threat, you know, there is this tendency to, to ban things that are um, a threat to, to people's, uh, what they view as their interests. And we know that dental boards in particular are notoriously anti-competitive because the North Carolina Dental Board, for example, was at the center of one of the most important cases regarding antitrust law as it applies to the government because the North Carolina Dental Board tried to outlaw teeth whitening by anyone other than a licensed dentist. And again, this is a, this is actually a form of teledentistry, right? Because there is mail order teeth whitening. We've all seen the commercials, you know, you can get these trays and whitening your teeth. Um, and so in many states, that's been shut down too, because, because they want to say that you can only do it if you're a practicing dentist, which is a, a different type of issue. But nevertheless, it goes to this point of um, concentrated, concentrated, entrenched interest groups 
banning other people from practicing the trade. And, you know, I live in California, so I'm, I'm particularly interested in this issue as well, because California has sort of been a battleground state when it comes to teledentistry, um, particularly over teeth straightening services via teledentistry. So there are companies like Invisalign, Smile Direct Club, where you can get teeth straightening services all through the mail without ever seeing a dentist in person. They send you a tray, right? And then you, some plaster and you put it in and you get these models and then you can have actual um, braces or a form of braces um, via, via mail order. And so here in California, uh, the dental board tried to uh, basically thwart these services or they, they wanted to make you go in to see a dentist in person first, which of course is going to benefit all of the California brick and mortar dentists. And we had an unlikely hero in the form of Golden State Warriors basketball star Draymond Green, who's, you know, we love the Warriors in this house. I live in Sacramento. Um, and Draymond Green, he had grown up with a single mom. He uh, understood that high costs of care often deprive people of access. And he himself had had to have um, braces. And he he knew that this is really related to confidence, that, that having a, a great smile affects people's confidence, which really affects their lives. And so he recognized that these new services that is that you can do it through mail order, you can do it through teledentistry, is a lower cost way for people to get very important um, care. And so he had invested in such a company and then he saw the California Dental Board trying to, to thwart it and he became an advocate for, for telehealth freedom um, because California had said that dentists, that these companies have to review prior x-rays, even if a dentist determines that it's not medically necessary. And if you don't already have x-rays on file, that meant going to visit a brick and mortar um, office and getting these x-rays. So you can see there's just, there's so many ways in which telehealth affects our lives that you might not ordinarily think of, you know, from very serious conditions like the ones that Dr. McDonald treats to um, teeth whitening, teeth straightening, uh, dental triage. You know, there's mail order companies now where you can actually, thanks to technical technological innovations, you can test your vision on your phone through an app and get a prescription that way. And yet we see states trying to ban that as well and saying, no, you have to go to a brick and mortar office, um, can't use the app. And even the FTC has said that these types of um, restrictions and related to eye health in particular, are anti-competitive and unnecessary. And so, you know, the great thing about uh, uh, freedom and innovation is there's all these new ways that we can take care of ourselves um, through uh, technology, telehealth, apps, and uh, that's naturally going to uh, create tension with those entrenched interests who are going to try to ban it. And so, you know, I really appreciate PLF's uh, a lawsuit and Dr. McDonald for, for standing up for, for healthcare freedom, um, because it's a really important fight and, uh, hopefully will, uh, lead to more, uh, options for all of us. You know, I love how we, we can have this conversation with me speaking to everyone from Phoenix and Shannon's in Boston and Caleb and Anastasia, Anastasia are both talking from Sacramento, California. Isn't it absurd that state licensing laws block patients from communicating with clinicians in the, in the same manner? For those who are watching who might not be too familiar, this might be a new subject to them. I'm just going to explain a term uh, called locus of care. This is kind of cr crucial in this whole discussion. So most states define the locus of care as the state in which the patient is located, as opposed to the state in which the 
caregiver is licensed. So for example, if, if you live in New Jersey and you wanna get care from through telemedicine, uh, through a doctor, from a doctor, let's say in Boston, um, the locus of care, New Jersey considers the locus of care in New Jersey. So if you have, and so does Massachusetts, so that if you have a problem and you wanna complain about the doctor in Boston, the Massachusetts licensing board will tell you, well, I'm sorry, but the locus of care is in New Jersey. We, we have nothing to do with this. So then you complain to your licensing board in New Jersey and they say, well, this doctor's licensed in Massachusetts. We don't have any jurisdiction there, so I'm sorry. So that's one of the, pro the major problems that, it, that exist at this moment. That's, that's kind of part of the, of the obstruction. Um, I, I wanna ask, I know, for example, New Jersey and California among the, 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 the other states is particularly strict at enforcing this. So that, for example, in some states, it's a civil penalty. If you uh, provide telehealth services to a person in a state where you're not licensed, but I think in New Jersey and California, maybe a few others, it's actually criminal and you might even risk going to jail. So I wanna ask, cause I know Shannon, you, you see patients not only around the country, but around the world. Why New Jersey? Why did you pick New Jersey to have your beef with? So I think this is an issue that's more than just about one state. It's really about the whole U.S. and most states. In 30 states, you can't practice any telemedicine. But for New Jersey, I have many patients that I've treated from there, and there, and it is it is criminal. And an email went out from the Attorney Attorney General's office that stated that after the pandemic, when these temporary licenses went away, that we had to cease practicing telemedicine in this state, or we would face the risk of losing our license as well as criminal charges. So in other words, you, you I think you had mentioned in your uh, op-ed that, uh, is it you or colleagues who are oftentimes instructed that when you engage in a telehealth visit, you're supposed to first begin by asking the patient, where are you right now? And if it turns out that you don't have a license in that state, just you got to stop the, the discussion. Am I correct? So many hospitals Shannon. require that the provider at the initiation of a telemedicine visit ask the patient where they are located and document that at the top of the note and end the visit abruptly if they are not in a state where that physician is licensed. So it varies by hospital, but that is true of some hospitals. Caleb, if you succeed in New Jersey, what implications would that have for other states that have licensing laws blocking telehealth? I mean, does, does, can this uh, case, uh, a potential victory in, in New, with New Jersey uh, potentially bring all the walls down around the rest of the country, or is it just going to be New Jersey specific? Well, directly, it will only affect New Jersey because in the way you have to do lawsuits is you challenge a specific law or policy. And since our, our patients are located in New Jersey and our physicians have raised this specific complaint with this New Jersey specific law, the direct effect of a, of a successful lawsuit would be that New Jersey's restrictions on telehealth in this specialty care context are unconstitutional. But this would be a, a groundbreaking precedent that would be useful uh, in, in other states around the country, we're of course um, cognizant, as Dr. McDonald mentioned, that this is a national problem, especially for specialists like herself. And so um, while I can't make any promises about future cases, we're certainly um, exploring those options of 
um, not just stopping at this one case in New Jersey. Uh, but yes, directly, this would only affect New Jersey, but it would create a powerful precedent to use in future cases. And, and not just by, by us and, and this group of plaintiffs, that precedent could be used by, by anyone around the country. And, and so while uh, I, I think one of the key things, and I've seen some comments from various telehealth organizations in, in the weeks since we filed this case of just recognizing that no case has qu quite like this has ever been brought before. So it will be uh, very interesting to see how the courts treat it. We're, of course, you know, confident in, in our claims. Uh, we're not at the Pacific Legal Foundation. We're not in the business of bringing cases we think have no chance. Uh, but we do recognize that there is a kind of a groundbreaking aspect of this. And, and that's why we're open to, to looking at this uh, beyond New Jersey as well. Anastasia, you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I was just um, thinking about all the, the different ways that we can make practical change. Um, and I'm sure, Jeff, you want to get into being in Arizona, you know, Arizona's groundbreaking um, reform that that they did recently. But, you know, I'm not a policy person. And so just I'm a, a legal person. And so following um, on the heels of what Caleb said, I would just add that, you know, it, it all makes me think about what a better place we would be in if courts were better protecting the right to earn a living, because they don't, they tend to treat it as a second class right, they don't deem it important, they don't, uh, not important on the level of something like First Amendment rights, which luckily there is a First Amendment claim in this case. Um, but if there weren't a First Amendment claim, you know, when it comes to just a simple right to earn a living, living claim, um, courts don't, tend to protect that right. They don't see it as important. And it's it's great that this case really illustrates how important that is because of uh, the factual context and and the client and the the patients that are that Dr. McDonald is helping. And, and hopefully that will remind courts that they need to take uh, that right seriously so that, you know, when the policy process fails, because it often will, because there are entrenched interest groups who try to uh, prevent change at the policy level, then people can go into court to protect their constitutional rights, just like Dr. McDonald has. But we need a stronger, uh, we need more scrutiny for these types of rights. Just uh, I uh, to, to follow on that, there are uh, also legislative remedies to this situation so that so that independent of going through the court system, there's another way that lawmakers can approach this. And for those of you who are uh, look at, viewing us on the Cato event website, you'll see under additional resources, there was an outstanding paper that was published a couple of years ago by Shirley Svorny called Liberating Telemedicine. Uh, Shirley was a uh, uh, professor of economics at Cal State Northridge and a Cato adjunct scholar. Unfortunately, she's no longer, she's passed away, um, but she outlines these. So on one thing that could be done is you could have unilateral state action and in 2021, after the experience with the uh, with with relaxing, suspending the licensing rules during the COVID pandemic, Arizona passed, uh, I think it was called HB 2454. So Arizona now, it's law here that any licensed healthcare practitioner in any of the health professions, providing they have a license in good standing, can provide telehealth services to Arizonans without having to get a license here. They have to register with the relevant licensing board so it could be verified that they indeed do have a license in good standing. And they have to agree to uh, obey Arizona laws. And if there's a malpractice suit brought, it will take place in Arizona courts. Uh, since that time, six other states have to, to one degree or another followed suit. In fact, 
our health healthcare intern, Ritam Pal, I'm indebted to him for this. He put together a table, which you'll see at the bottom of the event webpage, comparing the seven states now where, the, where that's pretty much the case. But there's a, one of the downsides is there's, it, it creates like a patchwork. So some states allow some, but not all of the health professions. Uh, some have conditions apply, uh, you know, attached. So it's not even, but that's one remedy, doing it from the state level. And it could also take a long, long time to see all 50 states in the District of Columbia do that. Another way is through states forming these contact packs, but that also could be time consuming. And it could also lead with this where states join together and among those member states, a license is good, but that also opens itself up to special interest pleading. Lobbyists love to have one target, like a compact of 10 states, then 50 different targets to work on. It's more challenging. And then finally, and I'd really like to hear the, the, the lawyer's reaction to this one. <clears throat> this was in the, in the Cato paper that uh, Shirley Sforney wrote. Uh, uh, there's, uh, a federal remedy where using its authorized powers under the Commerce Clause, Article 1, Section 8, Congress can pass a law saying that for the, for the purposes of telehealth, the locus of care, as I mentioned earlier, <coughs> is de defined as the state in which the practitioner is licensed, period. So that kind of almost ends the discussion over, okay, so where's the location? The location is wherever the person is providing you the service service is licensed. So that's where you can take action if you have a problem with the, 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 the service provider. Um, so those are legislative remedies where we don't have to rely on on the courts. Uh, who wants, uh, Ad, Caleb, you want to take that one first and then I'll go to Anastasia? Sure. And I, I think originally we I've had some conversations with this about this with Dr. McDonald and um, she mentioned Dr. Sean McBride at Memorial Sloan Kettering as well. And I think initially I was a bit hesitant being, you know, having experience um, litigating against the government and occupational licensing context. It's always just kind of viewed as a power reserved and left to states. But the more we talked about it and the more I learned about the national scope of their practices as, as specialists, I realized that well, if this is a commerce clause problem from a lawsuit standpoint, then the natural corollary would be that this is a pro a, a, an issue that is reserved to Congress um, from the from the outset. And so, I definitely come around to thinking that it would be appropriate for Congress to to legislate, as you say, with along the lines of the locus of care. I think, it, especially in the context of specialty care, that it's a it's a no brainer. Uh, because as has been mentioned, it, uh, oftentimes in the absence of the ability to uh, to see these specialists via telehealth, there just is no option locally for patients. There's a reason they're needing to see these specialists, and and that's because this is na uh, just care that is restricted nationally for one reason or another, just due to um, the supply and the expertise and resources necessary. So I think particularly in the specialty care context where um, specialists like Dr. McDonald are providing care around the country that that a, a national solution would be appropriate. Um, whether we get down into, you know, say one large company decides to just provide telehealth for primary care around the country, those might pose some, some different questions and that would likely lead to a lot more interest for, at, the, uh, at the lobbying level than, than something like specialty care. But um, at the very least, I think it would be proper for, for a, a federal solution. And 
Um, you mentioned the compact. I, Dr. McDonald pointed this out to me at one point that even if using the compact, because not all states participate in it, but uh, if you're in a position like her with the need to, to get a license, a medical license in all 50 states, I think the fees up front alone approach $90,000. And that's just the upfront costs. And clearly, I don't know if any, if no one will do that, but clearly very, very few physicians would ever even entertain such a thing, I, I would imagine. Actually, Shannon, you mind talking about that? Because I don't belong to any compact. So uh, you, it can cost that much? Um, so there's a publication out that was before the COVID pandemic that, that, that stated that it would be $90,000 to be licensed in every state. And that then then you would need to renew every two years. And I can tell you from just getting six additional licenses, I had to be fingerprinted a couple of times. I had to take some tests. And this was just to get a license that I knew I would obtain. There's nothing very different about the requirements for licensure between different states, but that took a lot of time. So it would be a full-time job to get licensed in so many states. Um, so really prohibitive. And then you have to renew the licenses every two years. So I think, again, yep. the framework uh, that was put in place is just so in need of updating. So, you know, I think as we bring this case forward, we don't think that anyone's going to look at it and say, this makes a lot of sense in modern day medicine, but it evolved from a legal framework that started before the telephone, when you'd have to ride a horse to another state to get medical care. And for me, I feel like that my practice every day when a patient calls me, I should call them back, regardless of where they are. They're my patient, and I have an ethical obligation to them to help them. And it's in direct conflict with a legal framework that is very outdated and needs to be revised and just requires some attention. Anastasia, what, what do you think about the, uh, the Congress uh, acting in its Commerce Clause uh, powers? What do you think about that argument? Yeah, I was going to say something um, similar to what Caleb said, which is that, you know, I think people who are uh, advocates of, of freedom, fans of liberty, uh, are sort of rotely opposed to federal exercises of power. It just, you know, the, the instinct is just to say, oh, let's do everything more local, more local. Um, but, you know, local regulators can be just as bad, if not worse, uh, than uh, state or federal regulators. And also, you know, the Constitution, the way that it's structured, actually, a lot of its delegations of power to Congress are intended to further liberty, right? So if you think about, like, the 14th Amendment, which was enacted after the Civil War, the reason that it gave uh, uh, Congress more power than it had previously held and made federal citizenship um, primary to state citizenship was actually for the purpose of furthering individual liberty and to make sure that states were not violated that liberty. And the same goes with regards to the Commerce Clause. Um, it, it, it authorizes, it delegates uh, the power to Congress rather than the states to regulate uh, interstate commerce, exactly because the founders wanted to maintain a free market because they were upset that states were erecting barriers to trade that really were threatening the economy in the country and in, in, under the Articles of Confederation. So I think it's important, you know, for, for those of us who... Um, who advocate for liberty to not uh, be 
instinctively opposed to federal exercises of power, you have to look at whether that power is furthering liberty or not. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to something like this, exercising uh, Congress's power in order to repeal restrictions on telehealth, I think that's not only squarely within the Commerce Clause uh, purview of Congress, um, that's the whole theory of this lawsuit, right, is that states are burdening what is truly actually interstate commerce, and that's the province of Congress. Um, I think it's important to think about that. And it's also just important to, to distinguish between poor uses of, of Commerce Clause power and good uses. We wouldn't want Congress to use its commerce power to um, erect uh, uh, more barriers to telehealth or to ban telehealth, but certainly I would be in favor of, co of Congress exercising what I think is its power under the Constitution um, to repeal those barriers. You know, Shannon, um, I after Arizona passed its what's called universal telehealth law, um, I actually had the opportunity to testify remotely before a number of state legislatures that were considering similar laws. And uh, in in Arizona, the Arizona Medical Association actually supported the the law that passed in uh that arizonans passed but what my experience has been is in every other state that i've been testifying about this it's usually opposed uh by that state's medical association and dental association and optom optometry association you name the association they're all opposed to it um talking just between us doctors here why do you think that is yeah, so impossible to know, but I think they likely think they're protecting their own physicians in state from losing business. And um, again, I don't think this is a type of treatment that's going to be used for primary care. I think people want their local doctors. They want to be seen by people that are close by and, and they want to be seen in person when appropriate and by telemedicine when easier. But, um, but I think it's probably fear. And yet I think the the states that have that have the most fear, maybe smaller states with rural areas, are those that have the most to gain. You know, people get cancer in those states as well, and they are going to have to leave their state to get treatment. And I think as Caleb mentioned earlier, you know, I treat pediatric brain tumors, the most common one. You need to start treatment a couple of weeks after you get your diagnosis. And to have a family travel around the country with a child that just had brain surgery is wrong. Um, you know, they should be able from the comforts of their home, comfort of their home to be able to access care. And, um, and so I, I think that those are likely the reasons, but, um, but I, but I think they're unfounded and I don't think the COVID experience supported those fears. You know, people, people accessed care locally and when they needed to, from specialists, accessed it from a different distance via telemedicine. And I think that they should be able to do that and to learn, do they need to travel out of state for a consultation and treatment? Do they need to, or could they stay in the comfort of their own home, but now know that they looked into every possibility? So during the COVID pandemic, I had consultations with new patients where I told them, you won't, you won't benefit from this type of therapy. You should stay home and get treatment locally. And that allowed them to feel that they had explored every option for their loved one or for themselves, but they got to stay home. So I guess I think it's mainly a fear of loss of revenue for local physicians within the state, but I don't, I don't think it's been proven. I think it's just a fear. Yeah, I think it's a suspicion we have, but um, 
actually, though, uh, in in more rural states, it, it also can involve primary care. In fact, that was the argument in Arizona. The governor actually was bringing that up. If you you know Massachusetts and the Northeast is pretty densely populated, but there are parts uh, of the, the particularly the Mountain West where people could live hours away from a primary care provider, and there could be a primary care provider closer who's across the state line. Uh, so it it also can be used to access primary care and as well as dental, you know, teledentistry and you, you name it. I have a question. I'm going to go to questions. And again, if you have any questions, um, you could enter them on our event webpage or on YouTube, Facebook, or X and use the hashtag Cato Health. Um, this is a question from Anonymous and it's, it's aimed, I guess, at Caleb, but um, Anastasia is welcome to jump in afterwards. Mr. Trotter framed the constitutional issues largely or solely in terms of pre or post-op care. Would the issues be different if the telemed call actually treated the patient, such as visual exam during the call or prescribing medicine after discussing symptoms? Thank you. Yeah, I could envision, for example, a telehealth dermatology consultation where you you could uh, get a good look at the uh, what the rash looks like and you know diagnose and treat. But go, Caleb, you want to answer that question? Sure, and, and even just talk therapy itself, you know, telehealth, you know, psychiatry. I, I think that that's certainly something that uh, some psychiatrists practice. It yes and no to that is a direct answer to the question. Would it be different um, from a constitutional standpoint? I don't think that difference um, really matters from the standpoint of would these claims be available and viable or not. It would change the analysis. Uh, I think that judges being a being an experienced litigator in rational basis type cases where you're just challenging the you know outright restriction on the ability to to earn a living um, and challenging a licensing law i think generally judges are very skeptical just of those type of claims from a general aspect but when you get into healthcare, they're even a little bit more leery and so i think when you're dealing with comparing specialty care versus more direct care. Well, the question was the the pre and the, the post, not the direct care. So I think if you're in the the realm of a direct direct treatment, like talk therapy or something like that, that that a court might be a bit more even more hesitant than they would in, in our type of context. But at least from an analysis standpoint, under the Commerce Clause, I don't really see that there being any difference other than the, the specific articulated benefits and burdens of the situation might be slightly different um, in the, the due process case of a parent seeking to direct his child's care. Um, I think the arguments would be extremely similar. In the free speech context, though, I could see there being quite a difference, at least at, at the surface level, um, since here you know we have distinguished these are just conversations about care, but would it be different if this was truly care? Um, and some courts have taken that question on directly and said that for First Amendment purposes, that is still speech and the government must meet a high burden. Even the Third Circuit, which covers New Jersey, a number of years ago dealt with a case involving a New Jersey law that placed strict limitations on conversion therapy for, for minors. And um, a, a subsequent Supreme Court case, uh, the NIFLA case, overturned a number of things within that Third Circuit case, but what was left unchanged was the Third Circuit concluding that for First Amendment purposes, 
that was speech, even though it was a direct, the, the conversation was the treatment itself. And so depending on, now not all courts have, have agreed with that conclusion. So it's going to, de- not, it's going to depend on where a lawsuit came up, but there are definitely some courts that have said that that would still be speech. So while we've been very careful to draw that line, that's due to just some strategic reasons, like I mentioned with you know, judges' hesitancy to second guess legislatures in the context of medical care, I think largely are the same type of claims we brought here could easily be brought in, in a case involving talk therapy or, or more direct um, treatment through, through conversation. Anything you want to add to that, Anastasia, before I go on to the next question? Uh, just, just quickly, I'll say, you know, um, I don't think that would change anything, as Caleb said, for the purposes of the Commerce Clause claim. Maybe it would for the First Amendment claim, because then you get into, well, is this really speech or is it conduct? And that's always a really hard line to draw. Um, and and I think, frankly, the question just illustrates sort of the arbitrariness of where we are in constitutional law, where we have to try to divvy up our rights to say what type of liberty is being affected. Um, are we just engaged in speech? Are we engaged in conduct? It's just, it's a very arbitrary thing to try to distinguish our rights in this way to figure out whether whether we should be making a speech claim or a right to earn a living claim or a right to direct the upbringing of your child claim. Because the fact of the matter is, is that these states are depriving people of liberty. And no matter what that liberty is, the burden should now be on the government to prove that its restriction is not arbitrary, is not purely a matter of uh, economic protectionism and, and trying to protect one interest group and their economic interests from, from legitimate competition. And that that restriction has a meaningful uh, connection to protecting the public in a serious way, no matter what you want to call the restriction and, and what you consider the underlying liberty interest, we should be putting the burden on the government to prove that its law is proper rather than asking the plaintiffs to come in and to distinguish um, what type of right they're asserting so that the court can then determine the level of scrutiny that applies. Um, so, you know, to me, I just think the question illustrates like a, a problem that really exists in constitutional law to begin with, which is that courts treat our rights differently depending on how you characterize them rather than just putting the focus on the government and asking the government to justify its restriction um, no matter what, what the restriction is. That's a perfect segue into the next question I'm going to ask, because uh, the presumption of liberty means that there should be a very high bar when the government is supposedly acting in, in the best interest of autonomous adults by restricting their liberty. So Paul Wirtz asked this question, and I think I'm going to first pose it to Shannon and then ask the constitutional lawyers to comment. Uh, it's, it's I think it's uh, actually not a question. It's more of a comment. Telemedicine is important especially for rare diseases, very specialized care and in rural areas, but unethical providers find telemedicine can provide an easier way to misrepresent and fleece less educated consumers out of money in a less monitored area. So a new interstate license uh, could not, a new interstate license could work as in other words, the, I think he, Paul is favoring the, uh, the compact approach where you have an interstate license. I would just like before, I'm gonna editorialize here saying, there's no such thing as any dishonest doctor or uh, you know, any doctor with, with evil intentions in my state because they're all licensed. So that's why we never have any malpractice or any misrepresentation because all of our doctors are licensed. I'm sure it's the same way in Massachusetts, right, Shannon? So anyway, uh, would you like to tackle that first, Shannon? 
Sure, I'm happy to. You know, I guess I see it as uh, as as being a worse situation if you don't allow physicians to either get a telemedicine license or practice across state lines, because I think that leads to companies popping up where they actually do license a doctor in all states. And then they will state that that doctor is actually the doctor providing your care for, through that company that you've paid money for or you've paid for a consultation from. And they'll take advantage of the system in a different way instead of allowing doctors at institutions who are practicing in their specialties every day to have access to patients in rural areas and for those patients to have access to us through their insurance companies. And again, I think it's going to lead to the building of companies that will be for-profit and um, it will worsen that situation. Yeah, that's an excellent point. It didn't, didn't enter my mind, but that we see that all the time now where you see these services being offered uh, just like the mail-in, um, you know, um, teeth straightening, where uh, the companies find a licensed practitioner in your state to technically be the prescriber, so they're not in any way violating state law. But it's, this is not necessarily a, a, a practitioner you've had any relationship with, with whatsoever. So already there are workarounds. There's always, a, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, and where if you allow doctors to practice across state lines via telehealth, uh, you could, uh, any individual can get access to doctors that they have uh, checked out as being experts in their fields and they could, with the reputation that they, that they want. Uh, how about Anastasia, I'd like you to say something to that as well. Yeah, you know, Jeff, I think you're being a little tongue-in-cheek about licensure, but um, it's a serious point that that people take for granted that licensure is the only or even the best way to regulate professionals. Licensure has proven through numerous studies to be anti-competitive, overly burdensome, uh, a product of protectionism, and lacking a meaningful connection to quality of care. Um, they have there are numerous studies comparing. Uh, practices in all sorts of professions between states that have more or less regulation or licensure or some other form of regulation. And it shows that licensure really does not have um, actually a significant uh, effect on quality or, or uh, people's uh, happiness with their care. Because people forget that there are other ways of achieving these goals than licensure. There is private certification, there's registration, there's structuring liability rules in ways to provide the proper incentives. Um, there are all sorts of ways to regulate the profession other than just saying, well, we have to have licensure because licensure is going to fix everything. Because in fact, licensure um, has proven to just uh, grow and grow and become more expansive as as the entrenched interest groups try to keep out competition. And uh, we have all sorts of ways in which people are being deprived of providing um, really important services um, for not uh, uh, reasons that would benefit health or safety, but instead only to protect the incumbents from competition and to keep the little guy out. And so I think it's just important. I think the question raises, you know, it's important to remember that licensure is not the only way to regulate um, and that there are, there are significantly um, less burdensome ways. You can look at the Institute for Justice, which has created sort of an inverse pyramid, which shows that licensure is at the top. It's the most onerous, but then there are ways that go down, um, including registration, um, all the way down to, to letting the, the free market figure it out. And those are alternatives that have been proven to have uh, equally good results. 
There's a good follow-up question on that, speaking about, you know, uh, third-party certification as opposed to licensure. But before I ask that, because that's a good one, a good follow-up to what you just said, there's a, a question I just want to answer because it's real simple from Anonymous asked, how are, were radiologists able to do remote diagnostic radiology consultations before the pandemic? For example, there was a service called Nighthawk, where many of the radiologists were located overseas, sometimes in Australia. And I know the answer to that. They had to get licenses in every state in which they were providing uh, teleradiology services. I know because I know a couple of radiologists here in Phoenix who uh, in their spare time were involved in these companies where they were providing teleradiology services in other parts of the country uh, after hours from their regular work hours. And they had to get licenses in all those states. Uh, but the, the good follow-up question to what the point that uh, Anastasia just made is Dave says, is there significant variation in healthcare quality from state to state? If not, why do state regulators tend to restrict interstate medical services? If there's a disparity, wouldn't it be more effective to address this through national accreditation rather than state-specific accreditation? And, and we do have all these boards, the American Board of Surgery, et cetera. So uh, you want to, Shannon, I want you, as a doctor, why don't you start answering it and before I go to Anastasia? No, I think, as you said, we're boarded in the U.S., um, but then we're required to get a license and the licenses are very similar. It's I don't think there's any license I would apply for in the U.S. that I wouldn't easily get after a lot of paperwork and money. My board certification is for U.S. medicine and um, and so are and so is the board certification for all doctors. So it, it in my mind does not make sense. And again, I'm going to keep going back to I think it I think these laws are just outdated and need to be updated. And they were created for an era with, that is very different from the era of modern medicine. Anastasia, do you want to talk about that a little or anything you want to say? I don't think that? I could have said it any better. <laughs> okay. Um, another Jim asks, my home address and care plan are in Washington state. If I'm in Kansas calling in from a cell phone, with a Washington state area code. It looks like Washington on the caller ID. And the doctor asks where I am. I could say Seattle. Uh, do they have the technology to know if I'm telling the truth? <laughs> I don't, anybody know the answer to that one? Uh, Shannon? I would you, say yeah, yes and no, not yet. Sometimes your computers, sometimes your computers identify where you are. Um, I am always surprised, though, at how honest my patients are. You know, they're told by a text message from my hospital that they need to be in the state, in a state I'm licensed in, and they could, at this point, lie, and and they don't. A lot of them don't. They drive to parking lots, and instead of being in the comfort of their own home with a family member, they're in a car on their phone or in a star, you know, a, a coffee shop. I have one patient who got diagnosed with her brain tumor in a coffee shop with her kids in the car, looking out at them because she didn't want them to hear her visit. She didn't know she was gonna be diagnosed with a brain tumor and she's on public Wi-Fi in a coffee shop looking out at her kids. So I'm surprised at how honest patients are, um, but, I, but I do think at this time point, you could get away with that easily, but I do worry in the future, we will track that. Um, you know, you had mentioned offline before we had this event that different uh, legal counsel from different medical centers give different advice. So some counsel their doctors 
uh, don't ask where you are. Just assume they're in a place where you can do this and, and, and don't, don't take, or something about don't take notes or something like that. And whereas others specifically want you to start by asking about this. Could you, could you go over that again? Yeah, so I think those of us that have sought um, advice from general counsel in our hospitals have received differing uh, opinions. And one thing I do want to note is that the general counsel is trying to protect the doctor. So this is not a risk to the hospital. It's a risk to the individual physician. It's a risk of our license, criminal charges in certain states, but not the hospital. So they are trying to counsel us best to, to protect ourselves. But some they're also trying to interpret these rules in the era of modern medicine and the, after the telemedicine explosion of COVID. Before that, we didn't run into this all the time. Now we are. And some hospitals have advised, you know, all are advising, avoid doing it if you can. But if you have to do it and you feel ethically obligated and, you know, if, if I don't call a patient back, maybe they'll be more likely to sue like that, you know, they, and they're, and it's just on, honestly, just not the right thing to do. Like that patient is my patient, regardless of where they're physically located in my mind. So I think that what they say is if you have to do it, some hospitals will tell you, all will tell you don't bill for it. Some will tell you don't document. Some will say document. And so it just, I think also shows us that it's hard to interpret these laws. It's hard to advise what to do. Even our general counsels know that it's right to take care of our patients regardless of where they are, but the law says that we cannot. So they're trying to give us the best advice they can, but I, I don't think it's clear to anyone. And a, another thing that's important for people to know is this isn't about billing. Bill or no bill, note or no note, you're putting your license at risk in most states and criminal risks and taking criminal risks in other states. That's a, we're out of time and that's a perfect note to end on. I think that really leaves everybody with the salient points. Uh, I really, uh, I wish we had more time. It, it goes by fast. I want to thank uh, Dr. McDonald, uh, Caleb Trotter, Anastasia Bowden uh, for this very interesting and important discussion. Again, uh, if your viewers are interested in pursuing this further, we have some links on our webpage. And plus visit the Cato Institute at cato.org. We have lots of information about professional and occupational licensing law problems. Um, and for those of you who came in late, this is being recorded. So uh, later today, this will be available for viewing online. And the nice thing about it is you could actually pause it whenever you want. Thank you very much and have a great day.